Hi and welcome to the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. My name is Carol and I am a final year PhD student at the National Addiction Centre at King's College London. My research focuses on contingency management and how we can deliver these interventions remotely using mobile telephones. So today we will be talking about securing PhD funding. Sharing their experiences, advice and tips that they have are Marva and Joanne. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> okay, I'll go first. Um, my name is Marva and I'm a PhD student at the University of Exeter. And um, this is scary to say, but I'm just starting my third year of my PhD. So there we go. Um, and I'm Joanne Pliliva and I'm also going into my third year, which is absolutely terrifying. Um, and yeah, I'm based at the University of Liverpool. Great, thank you. Um, so today we're going to be talking about funding and about securing funding to do a PhD. Um, so as we all know, securing a funding can be delightful when you're <laughs> successful, uh, but an absolute nightmare whenever you're not. Um, so I think let's just start from the beginning. For somebody who's wanting to, to do a PhD, what do, they, what do they need to know? So what are the different options, Marva? If we talk about what different types of funding you can get, so you can be self-funded, which means you use your own money to do your PhD. You can have partial funding, which might either cover your fees or your stipend. And then you could be fully funded, which covers both your fees and stipend and sometimes some research costs as well. Um, so I guess that's the first thing to talk about when defining different types of funding. Thank you. And Joanne, do you... Would you look at different types of funding, different funding bodies? So say, for instance, somebody who needed full funding for their PhD, um, would, would you look at a particular funder that might be different to ones who would fund only part of your PhD? Is that quite different or can you go to a funder and ask and specify what it is you need? You can look into the different funders and see whether they, what their options are, because um, I think sometimes they can actually be more flexible than what they perhaps advertise, they might say, so like certain charities, if you are interested in a particular area, such as addiction, um, certain charities might say that they offer, you know, two studentships, uh, two fully funded studentships, but actually when you inquire with, if you reach out to the charity, you might find that actually, um, if say you only needed some partial funding, say to cover your tuition fees or um, your stipend you'll be able to find out directly through them whether that might be an option because it might be when you fill in the application form that there is like a tick box for that um, so that's one option it is a good idea to kind of firstly think to yourself what is what is realistic what is it that you actually want because if you can manage to do self-funded or partial funding there might be more avenues to go down. Um, it's certainly in the way of applying for funding from charities and places such as the ESRC. Um, and there might be a bit more scope to get funding through there, whereas for full PhD funding, it, it can be a bit more difficult. Um, but then mm. you can also go to, if, if say you want to be in a particular uh, university or in a particular city, you can also um, apply through the university institution. Um, what that might ha what might happen with that is is that they maybe only do self funding options, but that's something that it's worth um, having a conversation with the 
the tutor and the administration staff about that first. And I think also one thing to add when we're talking about different ways of getting funding is um, that you could either apply for a project that is already funded or you could develop your own proposal and seek funding for that proposal. Um, and obviously there are advantages and disadvantages of both of those. Um, you know, when you're applying for a project, the research project is already quite determined and there might be less flexibility for you to do what exactly you want to do. But then some people quite like that it's very structured. Um, and then when you develop your own proposal, obviously it's more flexible, but it does require more work from you and from a potential supervisor, obviously. And the planning that goes invo that's involved in developing your own research project, because you're planning for three years and not just for like your first study. Um, so yeah, there's other there's a lot more things to think about. Whereas an existing project, it tends to already have the funding in place, so you don't really need to have all of those parts of the puzzle ironed out yet. So it sounds like the process is quite different then. Um, so if you're applying to a university to to do a PhD that's already quite prescribed and the research proposal is already there and the funding's already included in that, that's going to be very different to somebody who can't find a research project that they want to get involved in but they want mm -hmm. to develop their own. Um, it sounds like that process would take a lot longer because yeah. you have to secure the funding, you have to develop the proposal. Um, and I, I didn't realise actually before I started my PhD that you could get partial funding. I kind of thought it was an mm. all or nothing thing. But I think that's really encouraging because some people might be able to fund, say, part of their PhD, so their, uh, their tuition fees at the university, or they might have got a scholarship mm -hmm. to cover that. Um, but they might think, well, what are the options for me then for my living costs, so my stipend? So it's really helpful to know, actually, that you can apply to different uh, organisations, different charities, different funding bodies, and make up funding from mm -hmm. multiple different places. I think that's a really good point to mention because I think... For me, in my experience, I got funding for my fees through the university and then applied to the SSA um, for funding for my stipend. Um, so yeah, it's important to know that you don't, if you get funding from one source, you can always combine it with additional funding um, from a different source. And it can be really useful if you're an international student because usually the costs are a lot higher. So one source may not necessarily cover all of your cost of your PhD, which was the case in, in my case. Um, so that was a really good opportunity to be able to do that. Um, so if, say for our listeners who might be uh, thinking about a research proposal or putting together that PhD research proposal, um, where do they start? So of course, at the beginning you have these grand ideas of everything that you want to do and you think oh this would be wonderful um i'll get funded for this no problem somebody will pay for me to do this because it's so exciting but where is it where do you start at so if you've got this idea how do you bring that forward how do you secure it that's a big question <laughs> um yeah um i suppose firstly is looking at okay Right. What is my research topic? Are there any relevant organisations in that area that I could perhaps reach out to? And it might also be an opportunity to do some sort of collaboration with them as part of the PhD and create some buy-in. But also other like um, quite prominent 
PhD funding bodies such as the ESRC, the um, NIHR, who have quite a well-established sort of route for funding, for getting PhD funding. And actually, even if they're not um, that relevant to what your topic is, just seeing what that process involves can be a good starting point to get an idea of, okay, when do I need to start applying? What um, level of details do they need to get involved in? But also, one major part of the PhD is you need a supervisory team. So, identify, yeah, never forget the supervisory team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, is then identifying are there particular people that you're interested in working with? If you have no idea, then you could even just start off really broadly with okay, are there particular institutions you might want to study at, and then look at the staff list there. What um, are there like for addiction, for instance? You know, are there institutions where they have a well-established addiction centre? Mm. Who's involved? And then you can try and start getting the conversation going because you need to create buy-in for the supervisor because it is going to take up a lot of their time as well um yeah that's so true joanne you mentioned sorry just before we um continue that so joanne you mentioned get some buy-in uh so looking at <laughs> so considering with your supervisors are or other funding bodies about getting some buy-in what do you mean by that do you mean um having looking at their shared interests and seeing yeah. how you might be able to do a little bit of work on a different project for them. Is that what you mean? Um, so, yeah, you want to make sure that your research interests align up because, you know, you want your supervisor, uh, your supervisor's there to help guide you throughout the PhD process. And so it's really important that you have very similar interests because, um, you know, so that they are also interested in your PhD. And the same with a funder is, what is your PhD going to bring them? Like, what is the benefit of them giving you money to do it? So generating a good interest and showing your initiative and showing what benefits you can bring. And even for a supervisor, like, why are you a good... Why will you be a good PhD student? Mm. To keep them interested. But it's certainly... It, I definitely recommend having a supervisor that has a shared interest in the research um mm-hmm. it can help the process a lot more especially if you're developing your own project because they might be aware of certain things to look out for or certain funding bodies too to to target mm-hmm. so that would be my advice i don't know if you had anything else marva if i missed anything um i think that kind of covered most of the general sources um of funding um i guess some other things that we could add um trying to think we talked about charities we talked about your supervisor um one good website to search for phds is find a phd so you can look for phd opportunities worldwide and then another thing that i don't think many people are aware of is this website called alternative guide to postgraduate funding and what this is is a database for funding from grants, uh, funding from charities, trusts and foundations and these are usually small funds but they can be sort of additional funding to sort of top up your um, PhD funding I suppose or you know to um, combine with other sorts of funding 
um, but I think this is a really good resource that students can access. You can also get loans to do PhDs nowadays. So I think this is only for UK students and maybe for potentially EU students. But this could also be considered as an option um, if you can't get any other funding. Uh, perhaps you might be interested in funding it through this way. Um, but yeah, I think these are the main sources of looking for PhD funding. That's really helpful. I mean, you've given our listeners a, a good range of different resources to look at. So I know in my experience, um, whenever I was thinking of doing a PhD, I worked very closely with my supervisors and uh, their recommendations about where to go to and where to start looking. Um, and they suggested the funding bodies that I may want to look at. So I did that very closely with them. Is that? Do you think that's the case for everybody? Or do you think some people... Um, haven't quite secured their supervisors at the point of securing funding or do you have to su secure your supervisory team before you look at funding? I think it kind of depends what kind of um, funding you're going for you know if you're going for a research proposal I do think that you have to have your supervisor on your side and most of the these fundings actually require you to have identified a potential supervisor you know they're not necessarily signing up but if you get the funding, they are um, they're saying, I am interested in being your supervisor. And I think it's useful to have the input of the supervisor when you're developing a proposal because they can help you in terms of what might get most, what is most likely to get funding, what one organization might be interested, what type of projects they might be interested in. So I think my supervisor was really helpful for me in that sense. Um, but I don't know, what do you think, Joanne, for other people? Yeah, I mean, I had a very similar experience to both of you guys in terms of my supervisor was uh, very hands-on, but I worked with her um, when I was a research assistant. Um, so that's kind of how that got going. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think if you, particularly if you're going for full funding, you generally need to specify who your supervisory team is because... Also, um, that can help with your application. But you also, one thing I did forget is that you also need, um, if you're applying for full funding anyways, and potentially for partial funding, but I'm not too sure, um, you have to have the university institution agree for you to, to come up, to come on as, as a PhD student. So you'd have to have that, um, that signed off. But the extent to which a supervisor needs to be involved in developing the proposal I don't know, I wonder whether it depends on how how much you want them involved. I just think it can help create realistic goals within um, a PhD because I know for me, I certainly started my research proposal as being quite ambitious and, you know, it's it was my supervisor that was like, okay, that sounds great, but it's three years mm -hmm. and three years sounds like a long time, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all, I think we can all agree with that. I remember mine was so ambitious, um, because I was, I mean, whenever I first reached out to potential supervisors, um, they asked me to to jot down some ideas that I had and what I what I wanted to look at for my PhD, because I was developing the project as as you guys, uh, developing it yourself, um, and my ideas were quite yeah quite optimistic, and then I realised very soon that. You need to develop this alongside your supervisor because there's going to be certain resources that are and are not available to you 
So you have to work out what's feasible within, obviously, your time frame, within your setting, what resources exactly. you have, of course. So I think I think quite often that needs, it probably depends on the, the nature of your research. So mine is uh, working within the clinics with, with the patient population. So of course I needed to make sure that that would be feasible to do and what I was, what I was planning to do could actually be achieved. <laughs> so I think you need to work yeah. yeah, quite closely with your supervisor. And also, though, even I, in fact, I remember um, I applied for an existing project, a PhD project somewhere, and um, part of the interview process was, so you, we were given, we were told like what the broad aims of the PhD were, but we had to go in with a research proposal for the first study and, and you know, talk about it and what the plans were, why we were doing that. So actually you could, you may still have to do that with existing projects. Um, obviously I didn't get it and looking back now I think I proposed for my first study, um, it was my first PhD interview, was um, doing an ecological momentary assessment for my first study. I mean, <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> now, like, you know, I look back now and I was just like, what was I thinking? But at the time, I had no idea. I mean, it was my first, mm. my first PhD interview, but that was for an existing project, and that, that was what they asked me. So you may well have to do that for when applying for existing projects anyways. Well, that's what I was wondering. How much room is there in existing projects to put your own personal uh, twist to the, to the research proposal? Is there room to change things up? I guess it. I guess it really depends on the main source of funding for yeah. that research proposal is coming from, a bigger organisation or a bigger, uh, funding body. So of course your supervisor's hands are yeah. kind of tied with how much changes they can make. Um, I applied for a couple and, um, of existing projects before I was successful, and, I think it also depends on the supervisory team how, open minded mm. they are. So I think it's also worth before applying for existing projects is having a discussion with the main supervisor and you'll be able to get an understanding of of just how developed the research idea is and how much scope you'll be able to have it on the project because it is mm-hmm. although it is them that has developed it it's you that's got to do it and I think also for your own personal development it's really useful to be able to kind of steer the ship a little bit so I think yeah, before you come up pl- with your own project. Yeah, yeah, so I think it's always worth having, you know, quite open and frank discussions with the supervisory team before even putting in an application for an existing project as well. You know, it's it's 3 years is a long time, so it has to be something that you're going to be interested in. So I definitely recommend discussing it with the supervisory team first before putting in applications. That's such a good point. Joanne, because um, I think sometimes at the at the early stages of doing a PhD, you're not quite sure what room you have to negotiate. You know, if your supervisor suggests one thing, you, you may be very inclined and saying, yes, of course, I'll do that, even if it doesn't lie within your particular interest. But you know that's what they want you to do. Um, so I think it's good to have those frank conversations at the beginning. Um, and make sure, of course, I mean, three years, four years, whatever length of time your PhD is, it's a long time to work on something that you're not 100% invested in. Um, so I think you need to have those conversations mm. quite early on. So whenever I, whenever I think back about uh, whenever I was developing my research proposal, right from 
conception of that idea that I had right through to securing the funding, I want to say it took me about a year. So I guess for people who are listening who might be at the stages of developing their, their proposal, how long do you think in advance that they need to start mm-hmm. looking at funding? I think definitely, if especially if you're developing your own proposal, a year is probably the minimum. I think for me, um, the funding deadline was like end of January for the extra scholarship I got from the university for starting in September. And obviously, developing the proposal itself takes some time as well. So, you know, I would say roughly a year uh, for developing your own proposal. But I think if you're applying for existing projects, obviously earlier is better, but I think those projects might also come throughout the year and some people the, the most common time to start a PhD is September but some people do start in January as well so you might still get some opportunities later on in the year um, but obviously earlier is better um, so that you've got the next step lined yeah. up. Yeah I definitely found when I used to when I was applying for existing projects they tended to come out around April May time to start for September October and then Sometimes you'd get a f- the odd couple in October, November to start in the January. For a, a, applying for your own project, I think I think it took me about nine months in total. I mean, I was already working as a research assistant beforehand, so I kind of had an idea of what I was interested in looking at, so that kind of helped give mm-hmm. me a head start. But just because... It wasn't only thinking about planning ahead of the deadline, but it was thinking about all the little components to put together the pro- the proposal. So what methods would I be interested in using? Um, what my research aims would be? Even if they might change a little bit over the three years, you still need to have all of that in place and making sure that it's realistic. Um, and then getting the right supervisors on board as well mm-hmm. um, and getting their feedback as well because you you don't really want to send them a full proposal like a week before the deadline so and I think you know another point to mention is that it can take some time to find a potential supervisor as well I think personally I have been lucky that the people I've approached were from the get-go were interested but I think it's important to remember that supervisors get a lot of these requests and they may not always be able to um, dedicate time to it you know it's not necessarily about you but they might already have too many PhD students so it's good to have a couple of options in terms of who you contact um, and consider that this might also take some time. Yeah, That's really helpful to know. Um, so the, 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 pro- the research project itself sounds like it needs uh, to be quite well developed uh, before you even think about going for that funding. Um, so I guess that's just something to bear in mind that it is quite a lengthy process coming up with ideas and securing the money. Definitely, I, yeah. I guess the initial feedback or the gen- the gist that I got was that funders want to know that you've really thought it all through. They want to know that it's going to be, that the project will be delivered in the time frame that they can give you the funding for, that it is realistic and that it's going to be, you know, high impact. Well, obviously they don't want to waste their money. No, exactly. So you need to demonstrate to them that you're able to do this in the given time. Yeah. And it's, it is achievable. because you're an international student right mm-hmm. so I wonder how different has your experience been so for international students who might be listening on if you want to, 
to study, do your PhD in a different country. How does the process differ or do you have any points that might help people in that situation? Um, I think initially one thing to note that not all PhD projects or funding streams may be open to international students. So that was one of the challenges for me when I was looking through websites like Find a PhD. They usually said UK only or UK or EU only. So that was a challenge. And then you might find some specific international students funding opportunities, but they are less frequent, let's say, and obviously much more competitive in a way because more people are applying for smaller pots of funding. But I think there are a couple of options that I kind of got to know through you know my own experience of applying um so the funding i received from the university was called global excellence scholarships which were open to international students in a a few different disciplines i think and i think if you look through universities website let's say you're interested in going to one university you can search for funding for specific groups of people so you know you can search for phd international student and see if they have a similar funding opportunity available um and i think i've realized that some universities are now offering these international phd uh, scholarships which is great um ones that i know of are ucl for example they have the overseas research scholarship which is basically to fu- to cover the difference between UK and EU, UK and international fees. Wow. So let's say uh, when you let's say you applied for a PhD, and they allowed international students to apply, and you got accepted, it would only pay UK and EU fees normally. So this kind of scholarship might be able to with this kind of scholarship you might be able to cover that difference, or you might have some of your own funds to make up that difference. So I think that's an important to cons- thing to consider. Um, and you know, I guess if you're an international student, do look around for these types of different combinations of funding because you may not always get all of it in one go. And then what other ones I had? So obviously the SSA addiction, they also allow international students to apply, um, but they don't cover the fees. So you can get the stipend funding from them and you can find some find funding for the difference between UK and international fees so that's an option and then also welcome trust um, do some international PhD um, scholarships for people from low-income countries so I think those are some of the things I have in mind for international students applying it is a bit more difficult because there is less opportunities available to you but don't be disheartened because There are some options of combining funding and some people um, are now, um, more and more places are now offering international students to apply. I think actually the UK um, research and innovation, they announced that they're going to allow international students to apply to all of their PhDs, which wasn't the case beforehand, but you still have to find the difference in funding. But, you know, there's more opportunities for PhDs so that might open up some doors for some people. That's really helpful Marva, thank you. I have definitely learnt. Yeah me too. (laughs) (laughs) Going over all that there, there's a lot of opportunities out there that I wasn't even aware of. Okay, so in this episode of PhD Addicted to Research podcast, we speak to Professor Matt Hickman, 
who is a professor in public health and epidemiology at the University of Bristol. And he's also a trustee for the Society for the Study of Addiction. So would you like to tell us a little bit about your work and your involvement with the SSA? Uh, yeah, no pleasure. So I've, I'm a professor of public health uh, and epidemiology, and most of my research is uh, addiction um, or psychiatric epidemiology, and in particular interested in looking at the epidemiology and the prevention of drug-related harm or drug-related deaths associated with opioid use or other problem drug use, or also looking at the impact of adolescent um, alcohol use and later adverse alcohol use on uh, other mental health harms as well as injury. And I've done a little bit of work around um, cannabis and the extent to which um, it's a, a contributor to uh, psychiatric problems as well. Great. Well, that sounds um, such a broad area of research and really important and interesting work as well. Um, so thanks again for joining us for the podcast. So in this episode, we talk about how to get funding for a PhD. And we thought that it would be very helpful for our listeners to also hear from someone who's been reviewing PhD applications like yourself. Um, so before we start, could you tell us a little bit about your role as a trustee of the SSA um, in terms of um, reviewing the PhD application? So what does that involve? As a trustee, one of my roles is to... Um look at the applications for uh, funding, doctoral funding. And I used to be on the NIHR uh, Doctoral Training Scheme Award as well. And, and we tried to run it in a similar way, which is why we want to look at three you know, key areas. The, the person in terms of what's their evidence of an academic trajectory. And obviously in this, because it's SSA, it's, an, it's a trajectory within uh, addiction. Mm -hmm. um, also looking at the hosts, so who are the supervisory team, what's the university, what support are they providing, what experience do they have in the particular research area that the candidate wants to explore, and then also the project. You know, how doable is the project? First, first and foremost, will it be a PhD? And often, sometimes it's too ambitious, so we want mm -hmm. to make sure that it's actually doable within the time. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of framing it, because... Um, you know, you're saying that there are three aspects which are equally important to the project when or to the um, application when you're reviewing them. And I think oftentimes people perhaps focus on the aspects that their personal academic achievements, but not so much as the um, host and institution and the supervisor and also the project are um, just as important. So um, I guess, are there any other things that you would say um, that would make you select someone for an interview when you see um, when you see PhD applications? So I guess what we're trying to make sure that they've got some research experience. Now that could be, it's easy if you've got an MSc, so therefore that's clear evidence that there's um, some postgraduate experience, that, mm -hmm. so you've got some skills ready to do a PhD, but equally it could be experience in the field. So it could be doing a little bit more post, almost like a sort of research assistant or postdoc, not postdoc obviously, but um, some experience of doing research. Yeah. Yeah. In addiction, which you which would uh, be equivalent to an MSc or a master's if they haven't got that. So that's the key area that there's some aspect of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, really important. Um, so let's say that you've selected someone for an interview. They've passed that stage. So what would you expect from a candidate in a PhD interview? What would 
make you um, choose them over someone else for funding, for example? <laughs> this is I think that's um, a, the yeah, question that everyone wants to uh, know the answer to. <laughs> yeah. If I think back to the sort of um, interviews that we've had, often, actually, it's just, it's very competitive. You know, mm -hmm. the, the candidates are already, by being selected to be interviewed, we've already decided that they've got sufficient trajectory, they've got certain sufficient evidence that they could um, do the project. So at the interview, we want to, ch we, we probably then check the supervisors to check the, check the project, has anything changed? Sort of what we also want to check is to make sure that the, the candidate actually has written the proposal, so therefore can actually defend what the project's going to be. And that doesn't mean being able to answer every question. That means able to say, you know, what's the overview? What's the thesis? What am I going to learn? What techniques am I going to learn as, as a result of it? I think then it's just, a, a, you know, unfortunately, we don't have enough money to give everyone um, a PhD. So then it's we, we just rank and the, and it's very difficult to say, well, what's it based on? It is based on those, you know, that combination of, of the, the person's trajectory, mm -hmm. the actual project and um, the supervisory team. But all, I mean, also, we've also checked already that it fits the SSA's um, and, Yeah, goals. yeah. And that's something that applies to any sort of funding. Um, you know, the project has to fit with the aims and objectives of the funding body, obviously. And you mentioned something about uh, has the project changed? Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? I mean, in my, and this might be, in my, in my view, not necessarily the panel. Yeah. I think it's really encouraging and a good idea that if projects are part of, if, if, if you've got a supervisor who's got ongoing research in that area, it might be that the PhD is part of that research, so things might have changed. And, and that the advantage of that is it also gives us some confidence that, that the supervisor is going to be wedded to the project, going to be interested in it, but also that it's likely to be doable as mm -hmm. well, because it is part of a, a larger project. It's not wholly dependent on, on the candidate to, to push it forward. But even, even if it's the candidate's own project and they've developing it themselves, you would expect if it's a live project, for there to be some changes between mm -hmm. when you submitted and when you got interviewed. So it's, you know, it's a good idea to say, well, what's changed? You know, it might be that you've got some more publications. It might be that you've, you've thought through a particular study and thought, well, actually, I, I shouldn't do it this way. I should do it another way. And that sort of shows, um, you know, that it's being thought about and that it's I'm a project that's, you know, got some legs. Moving forward. Exactly. And it's also that, you know, when when the interviewers go through the questions of the project, they might have sort of think, well, one project doesn't look as strong as another. And then in a way, it's if the candidate can then defend that and say, well, actually, I've thought about that. I realise that I, I've changed it slightly and this is what I'm going to do now. That mm -hmm. shows also some critical thinking in the area which is what which is which is what we really want to support yeah yeah of course and i guess the reality is that when people are doing their phd projects it might change according it's to change yeah, yeah. it's going once to change got the, yeah. once you've got it then everything can be thrown up in the air again i mean i don't mean <laughs> <laughs> not all of it yeah um yeah and i guess uh, what you're saying is that um you know it's seeing that people can be prepared to deal with those problems that they might come across later in the period yeah because things yeah. things change you know especially yeah. now with covid yeah. you know, it becomes more difficult to collect projects completely change and if you can show that you're fleet-footed you've got that flexibility of thinking creative thinking then then that also gives the panel confidence that you know whatever happens it's going to be done
yeah that you're going to be a resilient researcher let's say in the face of challenges yeah um, you're going to get a phd and a training in research yeah definitely i think that's a really um insightful response thank you um so what about some of the things that people might get wrong at an interview like is are there any common mistakes that you come across as uh, as part of your experience um i wouldn't worry about being nervous at all we take that into account I think you know obviously prepare and so therefore be confident in your own material mm -hmm. and it will be fine I think don't talk too much because we haven't got that long yeah and often we want each member of the panel to ask a question so try and make it I mean it's fake I know but try and make it as much a conversation as possible yeah so, you know Rather than just doing a huge monologue, say, well, um, have I answered your question? Do you want to know, do you want something else? Because then it, it starts to become a debate. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip and perhaps not something that a lot of students will readily do because when you're at an interview, you want to get across all the things you want to say about yourself. You're trying to sell yourself. So you might fall into the trap of talking too much, basically, which is not but a good I, thing. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think you need to sell yourself. You're, you've already... You're selling the... Yeah, okay. The victory's already been done. You've already been selected. You see, It looks like you're a, a suitable candidate already. Mm -hmm. um, so now, you know, the focus in a in a way is on the project, on the supervisory team, but also thinking about, well, what does this do? How does this help? What are you going to do after? You know, what are your aims? You know, even yeah. if it's going back to become a practitioner, that's as important as going on to become a researcher, as long as you can articulate yeah. what, how the PhD, the support from the SSA helps that plan. Yeah, yeah, um, you need to have a plan going forward, right? always have one or two mock interviews because you can be rest assured that those mock interviews will be worse than the real thing mm, that's a really good tip as well and I think I remember having done a mock interview with my supervisor and for me what I've taken from that is me being able to answer questions that I haven't necessarily exactly prepared for so that gives me the confidence I know this project I can answer questions about it on the spot and that is sort of what is expected from you at the interview stage right you said you're defending the project you know it already prepare well yeah. and yeah. don't and don't be scared either of if you don't know the answer but you know who's got who who's got the answer then you can say you can say I don't know this particular research technique but my supervisor is going to teach me how to do it or this course I'm going to go on in order to be able to do it you don't you know you yeah. don't have to have answers for everything yeah yeah that's another good tip so you know what your weaknesses are but you also talked about how to address those so what is the training need that have you got for this project and how are you going to address that because you need a plan and I, was, I also like what you said about um not being too nervous and the fact that the panel knows that you're nervous um, and I think this is a really good um, point as well because people can be extremely nervous coming into these interviews because like you said they're very very competitive and there's uh, a lot at stake so um, just knowing that perhaps it's expected for you to be a little bit nervous but not to the extent that it interferes with the interview let's say yeah um, so those are really good uh, good tips so I'm just wondering overall what would be if you were to summarize your top tips for people applying for PhD funding? Just any final thoughts, like anything that you haven't been able to cover um, so far? I think I think the thing that I haven't, I think the other thing to to 
to emphasize both in the application and maybe in the interview depending on if you get asked is around the training opportunities that your the institution or your supervisors are offering because mm-hmm. that's what SSA what is investing in you but they're also expecting something back from the university because it's a partnership in order to increase research capacity because mm-hmm. the candidate will benefit the university because there'll be funds attached to that person for the super, super, supervision, there'll be publications, there's an increase in you know, opportunities research outputs. and research output. So being able to see clearly, well, what, what is SSA getting back for that investment is also important. Yeah, I think that's another really good tip because when we're applying for funding, we're always thinking about what am I going to get out of this? But the funders also want to know how does this contribute to them? Um, but yeah, thank you so much. And that was really insightful. And I'm sure people listening will find out very helpful. So thank you for your time. So before we go, I was wondering if you said any top tips for people who are listening, who are applying, but also thinking about how to deal with those setbacks, because we all deal with them, whether it's uh, securing the funding for the PhD or continuing mm-hmm. to secure funding throughout the course of your PhD which of course securing the studentship it just doesn't end there you have to keep uh, securing that <laughs> funding and we will be talking about that in a different yeah. podcast but yeah just top tips on how to deal with setbacks top tips for funding I think for me would be to stay open-minded with your options but also have a list of maybe things that you are happy to negotiate with and some non-negotiables so for me my non-negotiable was it has to be funded like fully funded because I couldn't afford to to do self-funded at all um, and work at the same time so being open-minded but having an idea of you know what sort of things also interest you and are there other things that you need to consider to help get you by for the next three years with handling setbacks I feel like you, you'll always get setbacks in academia and in research. Research never goes to plan um, and neither does funding sometimes. Um, and it's also just to persevere with it. And I find as well, being open-minded in that helps. So although you might not be successful um, in getting funding for a PhD or applying for an existing project, don't let that dishearten you too much and to actually listen to the feedback that you get from that and that certainly helped me when it came to applying for for, uh, full funding from the SSA was actually getting the feedback from those failed interviews that I went to and I think it's all just a learning process and it is competitive and it is difficult doing research and getting funding and doing a PhD in general but if you listen to constructive criticism I think you can only improve from there Brilliant anything to add Marva? I think it's important to note that you know you will make a lot of applications and some of these will probably be rejected it is a natural part of it and just to point Mm -hmm. out that we're here now obviously we have our PhDs funded but we've also gone through the same process it's not just like we've applied and suddenly everything worked out and like Joanne said you know every interview is an experience and always always ask for feedback and even though you're not giving it immediately if you've been to an interview I think you deserve to get feedback um, if you haven't been successful so that you can improve on your next interview or on your next application 
And I think one more thing I'd want to say is that if you reject it, it could also be about the match between you and the project. You know, don't always see rejection as something that is wrong with you, but also maybe the project wasn't a very good match for you. And I think that is really important. You will find, you know, what yeah. match the project that is perfectly suitable to you and that you're perfectly suitable to. So it's not always down on you. So I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Thank you. I think that uh, I think we've left the, the listeners with a lot to think about. So thank you both, Joanna and Marpa, for sharing all that insight into funding and, of course, your top tips of how to deal with funding and setbacks. So I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope you have too. And until next time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you to you for tuning in. And we will see you for the next episode, which will be aired in two weeks. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss the next episode.